0: So in talking about kind of the three uh, major events that illustrate the uh, pursuit of expanding and protecting slavery, uh, now through federal resources, through the instigations of wars, uh, attempts to annex, and uh, attempts to uh, purchase additional slave territory, uh, there were also a series of kind of overlapping and coinciding events uh, throughout the antebellum period that uh, reinforce a lot of the assertions made. Uh, In those episodes, and also kind of influenced uh, each of the arguments presented also by uh, Lincoln, uh, Henry Clay, and others, as far as their questioning of the motives and the intentions of the uh, various Democrat administrations and the slave power uh, more generally. So in 1835, uh, the House voted to institute what was called a gag rule. And this gag rule was uh, very specific. It prohibited the reading or the presentation or the uh, referring to a committee for any petition that was abolitionist. Uh, a similar attempt was made to pass a, a like measure in the Senate. And, of course, that was proposed by none other than uh, John C. Calhoun. Uh, it was rejected, however, in the Senate. And so... Uh, He stormed out of the Senate chamber in rage. Uh, Founding father, John Adams, who would later uh, effectively wage war against this uh, gag rule and and have it overturned uh, in 1844, uh, he described it as, uh, I quote, I hold the resolution to be a direct violation of the Constitution of the United States, the rules of the House, and the rights of my constituents. The freedom of debate has been stifled in this house to a degree far beyond anything that ever has happened since the existence of the constitution. And of course, um, John Adams is completely correct in this. Uh, what he's explaining here is that, uh, the gag rule amounts to an infringement on the first amendment because these, uh, abolitionist petitions are the words of the citizens. Uh, Now, initially, of course not anymore, but uh, back in the good old days, let's say, uh, the House actually met and uh, would publicly read petitions presented to them uh, by their citizenry and then vote on how to act on those petitions, if they should be referred to specific committees or tabled or or whatnot. And uh, beginning in 1835, uh, no, no petition that was abolitionist was to be read. Uh, So, pretty gross. Uh, Pretty gross there. Uh, One of the really interesting instances uh, also began around 1835, although it extended out uh, further. Uh, And it reflects on the insistence by the slave power kind of aristocracy to uh, control information and to encourage ignorance, uh, not only in slaves... Uh, but also really in, in all Southerners, especially the overwhelming majority of uh, free uh, white people uh, who seldom owned slaves themselves, uh, but they had to be kept uh, stirred up through emotive uh, appeals to uh, to passion in order to uh, maintain kind of the, the political dominance of the slaveholding class. And to this end, uh, Democrat President Andrew Jackson uh, he uh, appointed a fellow Democrat apparatchik, a man named Emos uh, Kendall. Uh, Kendall had been instrumental in the successful election of Andrew Jackson. Uh, he was very, very influential uh, in both local and especially national uh, news publications. And so uh, using his resources, he helped to spread and propagate positive information about, uh, about Andrew Jackson so that he would uh, secure... The presidential nominee and then victory, uh, and Kendall was a member of the uh, the kind of so-called kitchen cabinet, which was an unofficial group uh, that eff- effectively governed uh, policy-making decisions. Uh, Jackson uh, saw in Kendall uh, a confidant and a a like spirit for the cause of the slave power. Uh, some argued at the time that uh, it was actually Kendall who uh, was the de facto president, and that Jackson was simply a figurehead. Uh, But that's not an uncommon accusation to hear about one's political opposition. But where it gets uh, illegal and unconstitutional, of course, uh, is that under Kendall, uh, with the approval and instruction by Andrew Jackson, uh, Southern uh, postmasters and also postmasters in uh, New York uh, they either did not send or they would pilfer uh, any mail that was quote-unquote inflammatory in nature. Uh, and anything then that they categorized as inflammatory uh, would be quarantined. Uh, and then, I guess presumably after enough was acquired, they would have riots or burnings uh, to destroy all of this inflammatory uh, literature which was of course as I as you already are rightfully assuming was anything that was opposed to slavery uh, so we had our own uh, Southern Fahrenheit 451 as a governing policy of the Democratic administration uh, through the federal government uh, and through federal postmasters who uh, stepped in line uh, and this really is not even a uh, a conspiracy theory Uh jackson and kendall write about this rather openly to one another um a particular event uh, was the charleston riot for example uh where southerners burned huge swaths of anti-slavery literature uh which also sometimes included books by the way so like uncle tom's cabin um or other just actually rather brilliant books that i (laughs) coincidentally uh reference in sight uh in the uh, first and second volumes of the 1787 Project. Uh, and they burned uh, these alongside effigies of abolitionists. So they were already deeply conditioned to associate, uh, I guess, what back then had been misinformation, though it wasn't, uh, with abolitionism in general as being kind of a, a negative force. Uh, Kendall was rebuked by uh, Northern Whigs, and that would eventually be Republicans, for these actions. And he and Jackson both simply expressed, hey, you know, yeah, sure, we have constitutional things we're supposed to do, and we have the law or whatever, uh, but slavery is far more important. And we have a duty to our states that supersedes the Constitution. So it just really echoes uh, the state nullification arguments, uh, even though Jackson himself was adamantly opposed to uh, state nullification uh, but apparently he was not opposed to federal postage nullification and in fact jackson referred to abolitionists as wicked monsters uh, he uh, wrote to kendall uh, who uh, to affirm his support for the numerous uh, actions either refusing to to send Uh, abolitionist literature, or if it was received in the South, for just simply burning it, throwing away, destroying it, what have you. He wrote, and I quote, I have read with sorrow and regret that such men, he's referring to abolitionists, live in our happy country. I might have said monsters, as to be guilty of the attempt to stir up amongst the South the horrors of a servile war. Could they be reached? They ought to be made to atone for this wicked attempt, With their lives. But we are the instruments of and executors, or executors, excuse me, of the law. We have no power to prohibit anything from being transported in the mail that is authorized by the law. The only thing that can be done is what you have suggested verbally to the postmaster in the city to deliver to no person these inflammatory papers. So this is the uh, President of the United States saying that abolitionist, uh, if he had his way, uh, would be killed for daring to send uh, abolitionist literature. It's a capital offense in his mind. Um, and what's particularly interesting is uh, in the letter he's saying, yeah, you know, we're required by law to do this or that or or the other. But, you know, that thing we talked about, wink, wink, just keep doing that thing. So we covered uh, 1845, the annexation of Texas, uh, also covered in 1846, the Mexican-American War. Uh, Then, of course, we had the events of Bleeding Kansas uh, going between 1854 to 1861. Uh, And again, the Ostend Manifesto in 1854. And then new to the table uh, was the beating of Charles uh, Sumner in 1856. So Charles Sumner uh, was a a Republican uh, senator He delivered, uh, actually, a very eloquent uh, and beautiful speech in which he highlighted the evils of slavery, its immorality, and uh, called into question a lot of the purposes behind its perpetuation by southern states. Uh, And in response, uh, there is another Democrat, or a Democrat, rather, named uh, Preston Brooks. And instead of arguing against the things uh, that Sumner had presented, uh, he uh, attacked him from behind. With a cane and beat him nearly to death. Uh, and now this occurred, mind you, in the Senate chambers of the federal government of the United States of America. Now one would think that the even Southerners would would decry such actions that uh, you know there's a certain level of civility that is necessary for a good government of which that would be correct, and that's exactly not what happened. Uh, instead, he received hundreds of canes. Uh, from around the country, but of course primarily in the in the, the Democrat-controlled states, and uh, it actually kind of coined a little hit phrase of sorts. Uh, "Hit him again" was inscribed on some of the canes, and this became kind of a uh, kind of a boisterous cry for Democrats. Uh, the "Hit him again" phrase would uh, emerge later on in debates between Abraham Lincoln uh, and Stephen Douglas as well. Anytime Douglas said something that uh, the crowd felt was uh, particularly poignant. They'd say, "Hit him again," and so that kind of became like a southern rallying cry, uh, which is pretty reflective, I think, of, of of the overall social temperature of the time. Uh, was eventually uh, Brooks did resign. He offered an apology that wasn't an apology, uh, and ironically explained that yes, I had to uh, attack him randomly and with the element of surprise and with a weapon. Uh, because otherwise he would have just crushed me with his hands because he was much larger and stronger uh, than the little, little angry man in uh, Preston Brooks. Uh, also in 1856, uh, we have uh, this thing called filibustering. Now, we, we understand that as a Senate procedure, um, but it was actually a phrase that applied to the use of, of uh, private mercenary groups attempting to overthrow governments in Latin America uh, to institute uh, slave uh, governments, which sounds terrible, uh, but these uh, attempts received the recognition and attribution of the Democrat National Committee, and sometimes funding as well. Uh, and this was this uh, manifested itself especially uh, after all attempts to attain Cuba were defeated. The Ostend Manifesto was uh, made public, and that. Uh, you know, as they say, the cleansing light of the sun chases away all shadows. Uh, so Pierce, uh, still President Pierce, uh, and the Democrat National Committee extended official recognition uh, to the Nicaraguan regime of William Walker. Uh, he was a filibuster, and he had uh, just, or he had entered through, or into Nicaragua and instituted a slave aristocracy like the South, or at least was attempting to do so. Uh, and this was not an isolated event, uh, but it was uh, one of more high-profile ones. Again, the purpose of filibustering was to acquire slave uh, territory, slave states. Uh, ultimately, though, Walker was, uh, was deposed and defeated. Uh, in fact, uh, his position was so assured that uh, Democrat... Uh, newspapers and politicians were uh, saying that they could not wait to vote for uh, or to elect Walker as the uh, first senator from the state of Nicaragua. So that, that tells you exactly what the purposes were. Uh, you invade, you overthrow, you institute a uh, a, a pro-slavery regime, uh, and then you uh, operate through the Democrat-controlled Uh, federal government to become uh, to be adopted as a state and as a consequence expand uh, the representative power of slave states and presumably to repeat that process again Uh, so he was defeated he did return to the states for a brief period uh, but then he decided to return to latin america and again try to filibuster Uh, this time though he lost and was executed Uh, which, of course, was uh, much to the uh, mourning of uh, Southern slavers. Uh, He was eulogized in just the most glowing terms you can imagine. Uh, It's pretty gross. Uh, Now, a lot of his his crew, his compatriots, uh, you know, this cadre of mercenaries, uh, they actually later went on to join the Confederate Army. So, it kind of shows a a, a consolidation of, of purpose, I suppose, there. So, this is you know, taken alongside the, the real high notes, uh, the annexation of Texas, uh, the Mexican-American War, and then, of course, the, uh, the thwarted attempts at acquiring Cuba, illustrate this pattern, this growth uh, in the Democratic Party that uh, was referred to, actually, initially uh, on the episode on Calhounism, uh, that came to be the the governing principle of the Democratic Party as it was founded Uh, was to protect slavery uh, did so uh, through the use of federal arms and also through the abuses of the federal postage uh, and among others Uh, and of course violence and slave expansionism uh, first into new territories and and, uh, through war and subterfuge uh, and then ultimately through attempting to uh, follow that pattern to instigate more conflicts. And then when that came to light, uh, they uh, began to endorse and encourage and support attempts made by private actors to do so as kind of a two-step process, uh, hiring essentially funding private military groups to try and overthrow and create uh, slave pro-slavery regimes that would later uh, become states. Uh, So this really uh, brings us to kind of a a clear uh, elucidation of the Democrat Party in the antebellum era leading up to the Civil War. Uh, And uh, you notice a recurring theme of the fears of slave insurrections, and chief among these um, was the Haitian Revolution, uh, which can also justly be called uh, the Haitian Genocide, uh, which will be the subject of the next episode and probably uh, one of the lengthier ones uh, and probably and definitely one of the more uh, disturbing. Uh, But it is vital to understand in the context of American history the effects of the Haitian Revolution on the domestic policies of the United States uh, and the uh, looming fear of a Haitian-style slave insurrection in the southern states.